We are in this three-week series called Cross-Examined. It was a series I kind of planned on the fly to save myself a little time. I'm trying to cram four man camp sermons and slideshows before man camp as well. And I thought I'd save myself time from pulling from the archives and re-examining, cross-examining some sermons I did right when the COVID lockdown hit. I figured not everyone heard those. I preached those primarily to my phone online. And, uh, well, this week it didn't save me any time. The sermon from this week I chose was from a sermon in my humble estimation. It got a C or a D on my report card. If I could grade 2020 Kevin Davis. It was kind of all over the place, and some of you are like, he finally realizes this. But but I, I promise you that more sermons like that will probably come, but holy cow. Um, the sermon was called Living Hope, and uh, because it was only on 1 Peter 1.3, which is where that phrase is found, and I, I expanded my examination to verse 4 as well, and it's called The Hope of the Christian. And uh, to give that study a bit more of a central focus, something I didn't do back in 2020, I have to ask, what do you hope in, and what is the basis for your hope? What do you hope in, and what is the basis for your hope? And I think it's incredibly important to take stock of such a time as this, in the wake of just general turmoil over these past few years, that that sometimes asking questions like this, like these, and noting what the honest answers are, can have very real, very heavy implications. What do you hope in, and what is the basis for your hope? There was a presidential campaign some years ago, and the phrases were, Hope you can believe in. Change you can believe in. And I'm sorry, but by very definition, hope is not something that itself can be believed in. Hope needs a place to rest. You can't rest your hopes on hope alone. To say, I believe in hope, makes about as much logical sense as I I like the shape water makes. (laughs) Hope needs a resting place. What do you hope in? Do you hope in politicians? Do you hope in time? Time heals all wounds. Things will be better tomorrow, next week, next year, next election cycle, next generation. Things will be better. And what is the basis for your hope? Oftentimes, the basis for hope is, again, illogically derived out of the hope itself. (laughs) I hope that next week will be better because it's next week. Like, that makes sense. Maybe if people thought about it, they might try to explain, well, Time will cause these people to rethink things. Emotions will die down. And the trajectory of events now gives me cause to be hopeful about next week. Okay. You know, it's interesting. I I try to keep my understanding of the Bible fairly distilled down to this. The Bible is about Jesus. And I believe it is. But one of the things I can't escape is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, which is 1 foremost and utmost, of course, about love. It's a chapter noted for that. But in Paul's mind, he sees three paramount ideas. 
concepts, things, pillars, I suppose, in our relationship with God through Christ. He says, but now abide faith, hope, love, these three. And I was thinking about it this week because that's what I have to do. And uh, I hear sermons and I read in the Bible and I seem to usually have front and center faith, as it seems to be what we call our relationship with God to be composed of mostly. Faith connects me to God. And I hear sermons and read in the Bible and seem to have front and center love a lot. We are thankful for God's love for us. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and love each other. But Paul also sees hope as a big deal. Not as great as love, that's the point of 1 Corinthians 13.13, but significant enough for Paul to put in a category of the great things, I suppose, in life, faith, love, and hope. The Apostle Peter called Paul's writings Scripture in 2 Peter 3. And I don't know if Peter had set his eyes on 1 Corinthians 13 before he penned his letter, but back in 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 primarily, Peter made some comments about hope. So I invite you to stand today as we consider those two verses. And let's read those passages together. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as as I made uh, the joke after Dean shared his dream and no pressure and Everett reminded the pressure's not on you, So it is each and every time I give up, the pressure is not on me. It's on you right now to say what it is that you desire. It's on me insofar as I'm obedient and yielding to your spirit. But I pray that you would have full say. Father, we're going to peel back the layers of some things that I've only begun to grapple with. And I feel inadequate even now to teach it. But I pray that in your favor and grace and mercy that you would give us words to feast on today. And help us to be sustained by your word. Say what it is you desire. Please find in us open and obedient hearts to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now I bring up Second Peter 3 where there Paul, or excuse me, Peter referred to Paul's writings as Scripture. He also says there in verse 16, particularly that of what Paul writes, some things are hard to understand. So says the fisherman from Capernaum. Uh, So says the uneducated and untrained man, as some of Peter's opponents in Acts called him. Yet I have come to find for me personally that first and second Peter sometimes are rather hard to understand. Like, Peter seems to write sentences without periods for large amounts of time. Uh, Perhaps I should chalk it up that the fact that both Paul and Peter were inspired and led to write the things they wrote from the same author of all Scripture, the Holy Spirit. 
And that's Peter's point of what Scripture is in his second letter. I have been having Calvin memorize this. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The point is, is the fact that I make my living and devote my life to to getting up Sunday after Sunday, expounding on these things, tells us that we have weighty and sometimes hard-to-digest things that we talk about here. And I have found for our purposes today, it's going to be easier for us to understand, at least it was for me to understand, what Peter is getting at if we kind of unpack it backwards. (laughs) So that's what we're going to do, is handle these two verses backwards as we look at the hope of a Christian... We're going to be looking at four things in particular. The aim of hope, the basis of hope, the type of hope, and finally the precursor of hope or to hope. The aim, the basis, the type, and the precursor of hope. First, let us consider the entirety of verse 4, the aim of hope. And the aim is this, obtaining an inheritance. Because ultimately we must know that that creation was fashioned by God with this particular mandate, this particular purpose and fulfillment in mind that man was created to commune with God in paradise. Eden. When God first made man, He made them suited for communion with Him and suited for flourishing in a paradise. And that is quite literally what a perfect world is. And if that's what man was made for, ultimately that's what man longs for when they don't have it, right? When politicians sell their platforms on offering hope, ultimately that's the unspoken truth, right? They want you to have hope in them for what? To make things better again. Well, what does better look like? A more perfect world. A world without injustice. A world without corruption. A world that's moral, right, decent, true, good, A world where creation is cared for and not decaying. A world where hurt, strife, conflict, and hatred doesn't exist. And Peter says that ultimately the hope of the believer is to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We have been tackling the books of First and Second Samuel from time to time here at Woodland. And the last time we were in those books, we heard David say to King Saul that with Saul's attempts to kill him, David said, I might be forced to leave Israel, and in doing so, that I should have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord. David, like many Old Testament Israelites, called Israel the inheritance of the Lord. Now, I bring this up often in relation to how we, both Jews and non-Jews, also known as Gentiles, are saved by God. The original promise to Abraham from the get-go is this. First we read, and in you, God says to Abraham, all the families, now some translations will say all the peoples of the what? Of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I usually emphasize this. The original promise from God to Abraham 
was to always, to all the families of the earth, not just the Jewish family, not just to Israel, but the original promise was to all the families of the earth. And this promise is given after God tells him to go to a certain land. Now what's interesting is one chapter later, and I credit Jim Wolbright who brought this up in Dean's class, so you can take it up with him. No, just kidding. <laughs> no. Dean's class, as we've been going through the book of Genesis in that class, in Genesis 13, what happens? Abraham and his nephew Lot separate. They've been traveling together out of their homeland, but their flocks get too big and they need to separate. So Lot heads out to what looks better to his eyes, better fields, better lands. However, what has God said to Abram? Also Abraham. And the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Interesting. Now at first glance, and probably how I've taken this for most of my life, I'm sure, is Abram is in where what would become Israel. God's telling Abraham, hey, this will be a country that's home for your direct descendants. Just how I might... I don't know, go to some high point in McCall, smack dab in the middle of Idaho, and could say, look, north, south, east, west, everything you see is Idaho. However, what Jim mentioned, and what I now wonder, especially as we see the amazing promise that God makes to Abraham's, quote, descendants forever, that's a long time, still going. Well, who are Abraham's descendants? Biblically speaking. New Testament speaking, Paul says in Romans 9, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. You hear that? Well, then who are Abraham's descendants, Paul? Paul expects that question, so he says, That is, it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. The promise given to Abraham, recipients of that promise, are counted as Abraham's descendants. Paul talks about this more back in Romans 4, that the faith Abraham exercised was even before he was circumcised. Which many take to mean even before Abraham was Jewish, if we want to call circumcision the mark of where the Jews originated. But Abraham exercised faith in God that was counted to him as righteousness, and it is those who share this faith who are his true descendants. Are you tracking? I don't know if you'll agree, but are you tracking at least? So, backing out, we have no doubt our assumptions as to maybe even what the original human author may have thought he meant back in Genesis 12, that Abraham's descendants forever But biblically speaking, Abraham's descendants are children of promise and faith. That is Jew and Gentile. And in Genesis 12, 16, right after God says, Look, north, south, east, west, all of the land you see, I'll give to your descendants forever. Then notice verse 16, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Look everywhere, Abraham. As far as you can see, I'll give you all the land for as many descendants as anybody could ever count. My point is, is I wonder if God, even here in Genesis, had a bigger picture than Israel. What did Jesus say the meek would inherit? 
the earth. An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We need not hear the words in heaven as the location of our inheritance, so much as the grantor and the guarantor, guarantee, guarantor of our inheritance. Friends, the aim of our hope is the earth, the inheritance. That's the aim of our hope. What's the basis of our hope? And that's the next point I see in our movement today. Backtracking verses 4 then into verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. So, See, if we have a hope as a Christian, and the aim of that hope is nothing less than the earth, what is the basis for such a grand hope? If we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth, to a new Eden, a new paradise, a new place of union with God, if that is our aim, what is the basis of such a claim, of such a hope? Peter says it's what Christ has accomplished at the cross. In hope we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the basis of hope. This idea of Eden, this perfect world, what what people were made for. And this idea of that being our aim, again, being connected through Christ, that's not a foreign idea to Paul. Peter speaks of it here, but Paul also lays it out in Romans. He talks of the first Adam and what Adam lost in his sin and the last Adam, Christ, and what he gained in his righteousness. Romans 5.18 and 19 says, So then, as though, as through... One transgression, that is of Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, Christ's sacrificial death and his execution, though he was innocent, there resulted justification of life to all men. For, as through the one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Christ resurrected because His act of righteousness, His obedience to death on a cross was a punishment for sin. But where sinners deserve death, Christ didn't deserve it because He never sinned. That's why He didn't stay dead, that pesky man. (laughs) Death is the penalty for sin in sinners. And when death comes to the only righteous man, the grave, thank God, doesn't hold him. Peter says in this same chapter that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Do you hear that? Peter says Christ paid for this. Christ paid for your sins and my sins. Fully God and fully man, he redeemed us. Redeem is a term commonly associated with buying people out of slavery, paying off their debt. And Peter says, This is nothing so trivial, perishable, valueless as silver or gold. No, this is the blood of Christ. Right? Like the 
Only the Son of God who was known before the foundation of the world, the man of greatest worth, greatest value, whose worth is matchless, priceless, incomparable, incomprehensible, on Him rests our faith. It's a sure foundation. On Him rests our hope. That's the basis of our hope. He's the one who went to the cross for our sins, bought our lives back from the punishment due to us, and rose again because He did not have sin. So do you hear that? He's the basis of our hope. Concerning hope. If our aim is nothing less than the redeemed, imperishable, uncorrupted, undefiled, perfect paradise of earth. And if our basis is Christ and the fact that God Himself became flesh for our sake, died and rose again, then what is the type of hope that we have? And what I mean by that is what is the quality of hope? Because if we compare the hope that politicians sell, politicians sell cheap hope, diminish hope. Hope that we should easily be skeptical about and question, can they really deliver on this? Other hope can be material, wish-washy type hope. I hope I get a good car. I hope I get a raise. I hope I get to go on that trip. Some hope can be doubted from the start. Will that friend who betrayed you ever apologize? I hope so. What's the type of hope that you and I have? If the aim of our hope is the redeemed earth and the basis of our hope is Christ, the type of hope we have, Peter says, is a living hope. Unlike people who promise hope out of thin air, our hope has a resting place. Unlike people who expel breath and take up time with their voice and say, I hope... Coming from a place of emptiness, hope originating out of nothing, our hope has substance. The reality of what Christ did at the cross is weight, substance, credibility, in fact, invincibility, shaping the very hope we can have in God. Our hope in Him is already conviction of things not seen, to quote Hebrews 11.1. That's how solid our hope is. Hope the world offers seems offered most as wishful thinking. Politicians say they offer hope about what? Hope that things will get better, right? They want to have that Eden thing. That paradise thing. But how will they deliver on this hope? By putting another sinner in office to do combat with other sinners who disagree with him for the next four years? People say generally about things or future events. I hope that happens. But then... The route to make that happen is often out of our control, right? I hope I have money then, not knowing or being able to plan for the car problems that will happen or health problems that will happen. But living hope in God, because of what Christ accomplished, because of what God has done, our hope is weighty and is as solid as the fact of it coming about. We will inherit the earth. Our basis and foundation is on Christ and what He has done. Our type of hope then is living. It's what gives us life. It's well known, whether you're Christian or not, that people without hope don't accomplish much. The hope that the world makes, as counterfeit as it is, is what gets everyone out of bed in the morning. Hope is what gets people out of the... It's why extremely depressed people are people without hope because there's nothing to live for. (laughs) Hope is what people live for. 
The hope that this day will be better than the last, or the hope that what I'm working on will make tomorrow even better, the hope that when I get that money, when I finally make that relationship better, when that politician gets out of office and the better one gets, it's all hope. It's all hope. And Christ offers living hope. Hope that is already existing and only waits to be revealed. That's the solid nature, the living reality of the type of hope we have. Uh, Even I don't get most of this, but do you get it? (laughs) If the aim of our hope is obtaining an inheritance, the earth, and if the basis of our hope is the resurrection of Christ, God in the flesh who paid for our sins, and if the type of the hope we have is living and active and, and vibrant, solid, how do we get this hope? What is the precursor to this hope? Conversion. And conversion, at least as Peter seems to lay out here, consists of gratitude and faith. He starts in verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Gratitude and faith. Peter opens, or the word for, uh, I should say, the Greek word for blessed be comes from the same Greek word where we get eulogy. And you know what you hear at a memorial service for a loved one. And a eulogy, the Greek word means to speak well of. A good word. Speak well of God. And then Peter then defines this God as the God and Father of our Lord, our Master, our Leader, our Sovereign, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Whenever I asked you to pray silently, whenever I had time to pray silently myself, I usually pray the Lord's Prayer. And how does Jesus tell us to begin that? Our Father, who art in heaven. And that's kind of radical within a strict culture of Jesus' day that focused more on the He's Sovereign. He's grand. He's transcendent. Universe maker. He owns the throne. And I'm little, little, sinful, tiny me. Father? But we are to speak well of Him, and God reveals Himself as Father because He wants to be revealed as Father. How many of us wake up in our sins and in our problems, and we think there are so many complex issues, so deep-rooted, multifaceted, so long to explain problems, and And we think God is just as baffled and disappointed. But He's really just our Father. He's just our Father. The language of the Bible says that God is a Father who has adopted us as His sons and daughters. Do you know what the difference is between natural kids and adopted kids? Adopted kids, you get to choose. Isn't that great? The Bible doesn't tell us that our Father is one who's stuck with us or He just accidentally made us and He just has to keep us because He feels obligated. No, instead the Bible tells us that He fought for us. Peter tells us He sent His Son to die for us, the basis of our hope. And He adopted us, chosen us. In other words, He had the option to allow us to die in our sins and wickedness, but He chose us. And we are chosen because who God the Father is preeminently Father of, our Lord Jesus Christ, or the Messiah, Peter writes. God is the Father of Jesus Christ. 
Peter makes this plain in his second letter. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. As if Peter or any other Christian would ever be accused that the stuff that's written in the Bible are cleverly devised tales. I know that never happens. But theoretically, hypothetically, if such attacks were ever leveraged against the writers of the book of the Bible, Peter says they weren't following such tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, a Jewish way of saying God without saying God, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. A voice from heaven declared that Jesus was His Son. And He was well pleased with this Son. Perhaps you've never thought, but why is this important in our faith that Jesus is God's Son? Do any of you know what is believed to be the earliest book written in the Bible period? Not the one telling about the earliest events, but just the earliest book written. Job. And Job's central problem from the earliest book written in the Bible was the need for a mediator. In the story of Job, in a nutshell, if you didn't know, Job is suffering. He doesn't know why. His counselors come around and they're really no help. That's how you know the book is true. Because usually if you're suffering, and your counselors are usually no help. So, they're saying things like, well, you must have sinned, buddy. God's angry with you. But the book tells us without a shadow of a doubt that Job was a righteous man before God. Even so, the book climaxes at several points, and the climactic issue is this. It's quite ironic. Even though Job is suffering and righteous, and though his friends talk all the time and they make lengthy advice, Job feels and knows that God is not talking. And he wonders if God is not hearing. God can't be spoken to. Now, maybe if just everyone else in the book would shut up, he could listen, but Job 9, verse 32, For he referring to God, is not a man as I am that I may answer him that we may go to court together. There is no mediator between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Job is wanting someone. He wants someone who fully understands God and fully understands man who is fully God and fully man to be a mediator between he and God. And thousands of years later, here is the man in the flesh witnessed by Peter and affirmed by God as his son. Mediator, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Mediator, according to His great mercy. The reason we should eulogize or we should speak well of, we should state that God is to be blessed, is His great mercy. Gratitude from the reality of this. He knew our sin, but He still came. He's merciful, great mercy. I don't know about you, so I'll just talk about me. And I know me well enough to know that at the end of the day, when I face the King of Kings, when I face the one who breathes out stars before breakfast, I hope I face, and I know I face, a sovereign with great mercy. The word mercy here also is translated to compassion or pity. And God has abundant, great compassion, mercy, and pity. And I literally thank God that He is who I face at the end of the day because I will need it. 
The Bible tells me that as a teacher, I will be judged more, I will be held accountable more, but because I'm supposed to be acting as his mouthpiece, and I can tell you that that's a weighty burden to bear, but I face a God who has great mercy. In the Old Testament, we hear of a catastrophic event in the mind of those who witnessed it in many ways. It was really their idea of God dying. In the Old Testament, God set up this system where He resided in the temple at Jerusalem, and so Jerusalem was holy, the temple was holy. It was believed that if you needed forgiveness, you come to the temple. If you needed to meet with God, you come to the temple. And the priests mediated between God and man. There's that need for a mediator again. If you wanted to hear from God, you'd likely hear it most closely and clearly at the temple in Jerusalem, and so it was thought... And then a foreign army comes through and and destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And in the Jewish mind, it was unthinkable. In the Jewish mind, it was their very heart and soul being ripped out. In the Jewish mind, the confusion and the fear was great. What what does this mean about God? Has Has He left us? Has He forsaken? Is He done with us? Because if God was this powerful, if He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and if He's God over all the earth, how does this even happen? How does His city and His temple get conquered? Right? And it's in the middle of this chaos, this fear, this confusion, this conquering of foreign enemies, that one prophet named Jeremiah pins words that you heard in church today as if I had something to do about the songs we sang. And he pins Words that I often read at funerals, Jeremiah writes, as the temple is in ashes and as Israel's being carted off to Babylon, he says, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Huh, hope. Here's why though. Here's the precursor to this hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. See, in the midst of Jeremiah's world ending, for all intents and purposes, and being carted off as a conquered exile, Jeremiah knows, believes, and truly hopes in the steadfast love of the Lord, and that never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Do you know and believe that today? They are new every morning. I need to soak in that. I need to know that every single morning my sins are forgiven. Every single morning when I wake up and say, I hope I don't fail as a husband or as a dad or as a pastor, what great peace comes from knowing that God's love never ceases. His mercies are endless. And when I wake up, I can expect new mercies, new faithfulness. And it is conversion. It is gratitude for what God has done. Even in the midst of Jeremiah's world burning, it is gratitude still for what God has done that becomes the precursor for hope. Great is thy faithfulness. And the second part of this precursor, the second part of conversion, is faith. The aim of our hope is the earth, right? Inheritance, Eden, again, worldwide, the earth. The basis of our hope, the solid rock we have is the resurrection of Christ. God became flesh, promised us a kingdom, died for our sins. He's trustworthy. He's the basis of our hope. 
The type of hope we have then is a living hope. Not a cheap hope with a sketchy track record. No, a solid living reality that we merely wait to obtain. So the precursor of all this hope is conversion. And conversion is gratitude. He is faithful. If you're breathing today, that's God's grace. We are much more sinful and evil than we're willing to admit. And He is much more gracious and merciful than we would ever believe. And if our hearts are right by His grace, if we're grateful people, then we can also be a faithful people. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. Cause us to be born again is all one Greek word. The etymology of this word is certainly shared in other passages. If you were here for last week's message, we, we studied an interesting passage in Numbers 21. It's about the Israelites out in the wilderness. They're dying by serpent bites. So when they call out to the Lord through Moses, Moses is instructed to construct a bronze serpent, lift it up on a standard, a pole. And what happens is God says, when people simply look at the pole in faith, they will be saved from their snake bites. And Jesus refers to the story in John 3. He essentially is likening it to His cross. He's saying, just as the serpent is lifted up in the wilderness, save people. So when the Son of Man is lifted up, He will save people. But why does Jesus refer to this story? See, over in John 3, we're given a context, and that context is this phrase right here, born again. This studied religious type, Nicodemus, a Pharisee who knows the Bible of his day, comes to Jesus and says, you have to be a God. No normal person does the things you do. And by saying that, Nicodemus seems to be breaking rank with many of the Pharisees who don't believe in Jesus. Jesus, though, seems to answer that unbelief, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the following verses in John 3, in this exchange, and what Jesus does, is, is on this exchange, on what Jesus means by being born again, and it culminates in that story about the serpent from last week. It's as if Jesus is saying to be born again simply comes from believing. That's what faith is. It comes from faith in what the cross accomplishes. Faith that looking to the Son of Man lifted up is what takes away our sin, takes away the sting of death, the bites of the serpents. Do you hear that? Indeed, to be born again is to be saved. A transformation so wide, so inclusive, so many things, it moves us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It moves us from a death penalty to when we die to an eternity of life with our Savior and Lord. It moves us from captivity under sin to liberation and freedom under life. It moves us from outsider of the kingdom of God to insider. It moves us from slaves and servants to sons and daughters. It moves us from distant and blind, as far as God is concerned, to close and confidant or friend of God. And it moves us to people without any hope that we should ever count on to a living hope. To hope where the aim is nothing less than inheriting the world in Him. You can't live without hope. And my questions are the same. What do you hope in? And what is the basis for your hope? My own hope is that your hope would aim higher than just hoping for a good life. To be left alone. No, aim your hope on paradise. 
on what you were made for, on the reality that it can be restored. In fact, through Christ, it literally already has been restored. All that remains is obtaining that reality, that inheritance. And the basis for that hope is the death and resurrection of Christ. And the type of that hope is living and solid. And the precursor of that hope is conversion. Gratitude for His mercy and faith in His love for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, I feel like we just noted the top of an iceberg and we were amazed. Um, But we know in your word and in our walk with you, so much remains below the surface. Father, Peter has the audacity to say that uh, all we have to hope for is literally the entire earth. Uncorruptible, unfading guaranteed from the throne of heaven. Sometimes we base our hope on that's going to be a good meal next week. Help us to have a higher aim for our hope. Help us to know the basis of our hope is unshakable. What you have accomplished on the cross echoes to this day and it's just as solid and real as it was when it happened and as it was before you planned it to happen. Father, I pray that our living hope is because of the precursor of hope, and that is conversion, that we have gratitude for who you are, for your mercy for us, and that we have faith in you, that you do love us, that you did come, you did die for our sins, you have risen again, you are ruling and reigning. Help us, Father, to be a people of hope, and for that hope to be contagious, because it should be. Father, we love you and we thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.